Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today we are playing a bonus episode from Crisis Group's weekly show, Hold Your Fire. Enjoy. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going back to Ethiopia and the war in and around its northern Tigray region. I am deeply shocked and saddened by the news of the resumption of hostilities in Ethiopia. Ethiopians, Tigrayans, Amaras, Oromos, Afars have already suffered too much. My strong appeal is for an immediate cessation of hostilities and for the resumption of peace talks between the government and the TPLF uh, with, at the same time, the full guarantee of humanitarian access to people in need and the establishment of public services. That was UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres lamenting the renewed fighting in what's been a catastrophic war. Just a few months ago, there was some sign of hope. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and Tigrayan leaders agreed to a humanitarian truce. That frayed over the past couple of months, with Tigrayans frustrated at the federal government's continued blockade of the region. Renewed fighting in northern Ethiopia intensified further on Thursday. Rebels from Tigray say that Eritrean fighters have joined federal troops in offensives in the northwest of the region. Several fronts have opened up since a ceasefire brought in in March broke down on August 24th, ending hopes that a fragile push for peace talks might win out. The Tigray War started back in late 2020 after a protracted dispute between Tigray's ruling party, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, and Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government. The TPLF long dominated Ethiopian politics but was sidelined after Abiy came to power in 2018. Fighting swung back and forth. The Federal Army advanced first, together with forces from Amhara region, which borders Tigray, and Eritrean troops. Eritrean President Isaiah Safwerki has a long-standing enmity with the TPLF. As Tigrayan leaders retreated to the countryside, federal troops captured Tigray's capital, Mekele. Tigrayan forces then regrouped, mounted a guerrilla campaign, pushed their enemies out of the region in July 2021 and moved towards Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Then, in another about turn, federal forces hit back, with Tigrayans withdrawing to their home region in December last year. Both sides then appeared to tire, leading to the truce. That should have meant the start of peace talks. It also should have meant the end to Tigray's isolation. But though aid deliveries have increased, the federal government's mostly kept in place its blockade. Officials imply that allowing Tigray's economy to recover would boost its military. The humanitarian crisis in Tigray is more than Ukraine, without any exaggeration. Can the world come back to its senses and uphold humanity? If it's the worst humanitarian crisis, and I'm saying nowhere on earth six million people are sealed off, nowhere from basic services, from their own money, from telecom, from food, from medicine. This is the worst disaster on earth as we speak. I am from, from Tigray. It's not because from I am from Tigray that I'm saying this. That's the truth. It's been a war with a phenomenal human toll. That was World Health Organization Chief Tedros Adenom Ghebreyesus, who is himself Tigrayan and a former TPLF Politburo member, talking about the costs. Earlier this week, UN human rights experts published a report saying all sides had likely committed war crimes and that the government's denial of basic services to Tigray amounted to a crime against humanity. Yet despite the toll, and despite Ethiopia's position as the linchpin in the Horn of Africa, the war, as Dr Tedros implies, doesn't seem to get anything like the attention it deserves. 
So to talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast, Will Davison, Crisis Group's Ethiopia expert. Will, welcome back on. Thanks so much for having me back, Richard. So Will, we'll have plenty of time to talk through today how we got here, but maybe let's start with a quick overview of what's happening now in and around Tigray to the extent we know and what it means for the war's trajectory. What we have in terms of the latest developments is what the Tigrayan side has called essentially a sort of full-scale intervention by Eritrea's military from several of their border crossings in the north. And so this sort of represents a escalation upon an escalation. Fighting resumed actually just across the southern Tigray border uh, on the 24th of of August. Um, A sort of very volatile front line there. And that was uh, Tigrayans attacking, sort of moving south, in essence. Well, they ended up moving south. I think that it's very hard to know exactly who fired the first shot. The first fighting seemed to be primarily in Amhara region. Um, The Tigrayans, um, important point of defence for them, that area of southern Tigray, directly due south of the capital, Mekele, is another area that the Amhara region um, and Amhara factions claim. Um, so very volatile front lines with Tigray seemingly defending a sort of buffer zone across the Tigray border. Um, so things you know, kicked off there involving federal and Amhara forces on the one side and the Tigrayans on the other. And then they sort of spread west, um, another point on the Tigray-Amhara border, but still you know, sort of the centre of the of the country, I suppose. And then you know, after the sort of first week of fighting moving into September, we saw some you know, federal airstrikes and the Tigrayans had some gains on that southern front. And then we saw the opening of two other major fronts, entry points into Tigray from Eritrea um, in the northwest and then in the southwest. You're coming from sort of north Gonda um, again into another sort of area of, of Tigray that Amhara claim, and that was a mixture of Amhara and federal forces. So that was the main fronts up until a couple of days ago. And and then, um, like I say, you have reports from the Tigrayans, the full-scale Eritrean invasion, essentially, um, over the last couple of days, suggesting an incredibly serious resumption of the civil war. And we had heard that the Eritreans, President uh, Isaiah Safwerki, embarked on a mass mobilisation. I mean, uh, Eritrea already has the draft for most Eritreans, but um, an even broader mobilisation in preparation and and so following that, there seems to be, as you said, over the last couple of days, this major Eritrean offensive. But is that confirmed by anyone except the Tigrayans? The, the US envoy, Mike Hammer, has confirmed it. There's some eyewitness reports from the sort of humanitarian sector to Reuters, I think. As ever, it's hard to confirm and be certain about the details and the scale of these things. Um, so whether the sort of Tigrayan claim of a full-scale invasion is accurate um, is in you know, yet, yet to be fully verified. There seems to be no doubt that there's been major increase in the Eritrean involvement over the past couple of days. And what I don't know at this stage, um, and I don't think anyone really does, to be honest, is if there's any sort of clear outcome from those initial battles as a result of this latest incursion. And so, well, why don't we then back up a bit and talk about how we got here? So, you know, as we heard up top, the parties were fighting through most of 2021. There was a then a humanitarian truce, a sort of informal ceasefire back in March this year. And the parties were supposed to then start political talks. But those talks never really seemed to sort of get going. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened with those? Yes, yeah, so well, as you 
recall um, that that humanitarian truce in, in March that followed events in December at the turn of the year where the Tigray forces retreated to Tigray and the federal military didn't pursue them into Tigray. So that, that was the sort of beginning of a significant lull in the fighting and a bit of a standoff, I, I guess, as it's turned out. But then after the sort of March truce, we had some quite uh, positive signs in June. Um, the US, um, the, you know, the envoy, uh, Mike Hammer, you know, facilitated meetings in, um, in the Seychelles and Djibouti between representatives of the Tigray and federal governments and not the Eritreans and not you know, Amhara region specifically. And the details of that, obviously, were sort of private meetings. These are not formal, internationally mediated peace talks. They're private um, efforts to bring people together. And Will, although those were these quiet meetings, do you have a sense of what they involved? I mean, what the parties discussed and sort of what they'd come away with? So we had two meetings between federal and Tigray uh, representatives and the Seychelles and then then Djibouti in in June. And these are private meetings, so it's not entirely clear what transpired. But... My understanding from speaking to various elements here, uh, Mekele, Addis, and, 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 and in the US, is that there was a significant commitment from the federal representatives that they would take action to restore services to Tigray. That means the sort of federally provided telecommunications, banking, and electricity services primarily. Now, this is significant because the Tigrayan position has been that they're not willing to sit around the negotiating table and haggle and bargain with what they consider to be what, what are essential services and also your know, com- commodities, obviously. And this, you know, amounts to what is described as a blockade or a siege upon Tigray. So when you had the federal representatives saying that the restoration of services to Tigray will not be an obstacle to peace talks, uh, this was gladly received by the Tigrayan side and, and gave the U.S facilitators uh, indications that we might actually see some genuine progress because if the federal government had been able to take that sort of action they'd increase the amount of food aid going in but they hadn't done anything to restore these these services so important parts of the critical parts of the the blockade were still in place if they had been able to do that then you can really start to rebuild some confidence and alleviate the situation inside Tigray and from there hopefully use that as a springboard to move to formal talks. But that then doesn't seem to have happened. What's your sense of why those sort of initially positive readings from the Seychelles and Djibouti talks didn't lead to much concrete? So my my understanding is that we had a very critical period between June and and early August, essentially. And the Tigrayans, as as you know, they have um, very, very sort of uncompromising positions. And so they, they were obviously demanding... Uh, at least their starting position was you know, the full restoration of services, unfettered aid access, including things like unrestricted fuel supply. And the, the federal government taking action, or at least acknowledging that the Amhara takeover of Western Tigray was unconstitutional and calling for the exit of Eritrean troops. But the first thing really that was seen to be the sort of key to, to making progress was this issue of service restoration. And essentially what happened is that the federal government said, yes, we're willing to do this. But because of the security situ- situation, uh, because our technicians you know, have been victims before of, of, of Tigray's government um, or their security forces, and because of the, you know, the complications caused by the complete breakdown of any sort of legal or administrative constitutional relationship between the federal and regional governments, federal officials said we need to hold talks about how to implement 
the restoration of services. Um, and the Tigrayans, you know, coming from their perspective, they just see it, you know, this as an outrage, and it's more a question of a flick of a, the switch, and it's more a question of political will. That you know, the federal government wanted to discuss payment for the services, and at one point, you know, one of the senior Tigrayan commanders said, "Well, we haven't received our budget from the federal government for a couple of years, so they can just take the payments out of this." So it sort of got lost in this sort of detail, but detail at which, as usual, reflects the complete gulf in perception of what's going on and the total lack of trust between the parties. The end result was that no progress was made in, in July. So the tensions um, correspondingly increased because obviously this is an incredibly volatile truce. Um, essentially, nothing has been done to address the, the political disagreements and all the bad blood that has built up. And so when you have the failure to actually make progress on these substantive issues, then that led us back to where we are today. In early August, we had a crucial visit of the international envoys, the Americans and the EU and the UN, um, to Mekele, Tigray's capital. And they came back to Addis saying, well, we've got security guarantees from the Tigray's government for your technicians. Um, that didn't go down well in Addis at all. They saw the envoys as taking the side of of the TPLF. Um, then Addis started saying that the issue of service restoration would have to be sort of dealt with alongside negotiations over a permanent ceasefire. And that's not the Tigrayans idea of sequencing here. You know, it's lifting the blockade, then moving to negotiations, which would include discussions of you know, permanent ceasefire. So really, at that point in early August, when the envoys attempt to mediate here, failed. Um, I think that really you know, set the fuse for, for the resumption of, of the war that we saw three weeks later. What federal officials say is they're reluctant to pump in fuel to Tigray when the Tigrayans are still armed, when it's going to reinforce their military capability. Now, obviously, it's also a humanitarian question, and we'll, we'll get in a moment to what the UN human rights experts have said recently about the federal government's blockade of Tigray. Uh, but I mean, from the government's perspective, fuel to use that as an example, is, is a military issue as well as a humanitarian one. That's it. And, yeah, that's, you know, th- these, these types of dilemmas are, are really at the, at the root of um, why it's so hard to, to get out um, of the sort of escape, the sort of logic of, of conflict we have. Um, you know, essentially, Addis, as, as you know, supported by Eritrea's government and uh, Addis's regional allies, has applied you know, a siege strategy here. Obviously, on the Tigrayan side, people would just say that simply has malicious intent. It's it's just out to destroy Tigrayan Tigrayans. But you know, for the architects and the, the perpetrators of this, you're partly what, what they are doing is using absolutely brutal and, and ultimately you know, illegal under international law military tactics to defeat Tigray's leadership and, and as a sort of byproduct of that, subjugate Tigray's people by restricting all of these essential services. But part of the logic is that, as you are implying, um, the fuel can be, you know, if the fuel supply can be manipulated and, and diverted, it's hard for anyone to be sure of that. And any boost to Tigray's economy, um, seen from the sort of hardliner position in Addis and Asmara and elsewhere, is seen to potentially boost Tigray's military capacity. So where, when we're in a situation of such a volatile truce, which, as we've seen, could break down and and degenerate into full-blown war at any point. And, Will, the last few months have seen the Ethiopian Federal Army build up its forces, right? I mean, there's no, there's no arms embargo on Ethiopia. It can purchase weapons. But what about the Tigrayan side? Earlier in the war, obviously, they captured a lot of weapons from the forces they were fighting. But have they been able to replenish their weapons in the interim? 
it's not easy to to tell. That's a bit of an un- understatement. You know, the, the, it's um, obviously there's very little access to Degray and, and the telecommunications are out. It's just limited contact with with people that I and and others have. So it's it's genuinely hard to tell. And it's not like a military run by a TPLF government is is going to be that transparent about its activities in any circumstances. So it, it is very hard to tell. I think what what, what we know and. You know, what they're open about is there's been a lot of recruitment and training and organizing and, and strategizing. Um, what is a lot less clear is you know, how they've been able to replenish their their supplies and and improve their stocks of military hardware. I mean, I think there's probably been you know, more contraband activity than has generally been reported, you know, perhaps you know, including sort of ammunition light arms. We know there's been some deliveries um, going in at nighttime, cargo deliveries to Tigray. Um, there were sort of 10 deliveries earlier in the year, as we've discussed before. Um, but you know, no one really knows what, what the cargo was or, or where it came from. Um, and then, of course, there's been a certain amount of stockpiling and uh, building up their equipment during the war it, it, itself. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of not that intuitive um, just how they've managed to build up their military capacity to this degree but that is what they've seemed to do and of course you know, the situation in Tigray this sort of desperate situation um, that they face both your know, humanitarian economic situation as well as the military um, security position they're in essentially has meant that the entire region seems to be mobilized either to sort of fight famine or to defend the region so I yeah, I think our sort of best understanding at the moment is that the military capacity they have, obviously, it's very infantry heavy um, and relies a lot um, on this relatively popular cause and, and the ability of the Tigrayan leadership, both military and political, to marshal the, the few resources they have to, to create an effective fighting force. If you look then at the sort of federal government side, um, obviously, federal forces fighting together. Uh, with uh, the Amhara forces, as, as uh, we mentioned up top, and with with Eritrea, I mean, how much do you see sort of Abby in the driving seat? I mean, is is it Abby himself who's decided to go back to war? Or is it sort of is he responding to pressure from others? I mean, how generally is he sort of viewed? Have his sort of inner circle viewed the the humanitarian truce and what they got out of it, and why it was worth resuming fighting? Perhaps. You know, rather than it being um, either side really seeing that you know return to war was a, you know, a good idea and it would be easy to achieve their aims, and you know, we should discuss that. But it, maybe it was more that they were unable to escape a return to war um, because of the nature of the political disagreements, the complete breakdown in the relationship, just how hard it is to you know, to think of a, a compromise and a settlement that can satisfy all, all the sort of big parties here, you know, the federal government, Tigray's government, um, Amhara nationalists and, and the Eritrea's government, just very hard to put those pieces together and keep everyone happy. So I think from the federal leadership's perspective, they needed a, a break um, obviously, you know, last year was devastating for the federal military in many ways. Um, also, the government's fiscal position was not at all good. Um, the country's overall economic position was you know, increasingly fragile. The federal and the regional government in Oromia faced a growing insurgency from the Oromo Liberation Army there. So it's useful to focus some attention um, in that direction. Maybe just to say that Oromia is Ethiopia's uh, most populous region. It surrounds uh, the capital Addis and um, well, it's Abiy's home region. But he 
also faces resistance there from the Oromo Liberation Army, an Oromo nationalist insurgency. And there's been some quite fierce fighting this year, uh, but it's been quieter over the past month. Yeah, that's that's right. So I think the sort of combination of sort of needing a, a break to replenish and recover, the need to repair international relations and try and sort of uh, re-establish your international reputation to get increased financing flowing back through to Addis and, and those other concerns. I think that's you know, what led to the attempt at a peace process. But then for those reasons discussed, it was just incredibly difficult to make that peace process turn into anything, even if the federal leadership was incredibly well-intentioned and committed to it. And I you know, obviously can't be be sure of that. Um, and I think we've got something similar from the Tigrayan side. I mean, they, you know, they both sides always talk about their willingness to try and make peace and negotiate their way out of it. But of course, that's on their terms only. And the Tigrayans aren't you know, willing to make peace by surrendering. And they're not willing to go to the negotiating table whilst Tigray is still under under a blockade. And I mean, to some degree, Abi is also trying to keep his ruling coalition together in Addis, right? And a big, I mean, a big component of, the, of that is the Amhara. And as soon as the, the war in Tigray stops, the strains in the relationship with Amhara leaders become clearer. So that's that's absolutely correct and important to, to remember. So you know, it's, it's hard to think how you can bring Abiy and the TPLF leadership back together here, given everything that's occurred. But it's even harder uh, to understand um, how the Amhara and Tigray regional elites and the, increasingly the people can agree on the issue of Western Tigray or Walkite, as the Amhara call it. You know, that is essentially a zero sum um, battle for, for territory now. Western Tigray, just to say, as we're going to come back to this, because it's arguably the sort of thorniest policy question. But Western Tigray is an area that's been part of Tigray since the early 1990s. But the, the Amhara, who also claimed the land, they captured it during the early days of the war and have been holding it since. Yes, yeah, that's that's right. Um, Western Tigray was part of Tigray during the federal federal era. You know, assessed that was assessed on sort of demographic its demographic composition. Uh, but various Amhara elements always said it should never have been part of Tigray. It's historical Amhara territory, and they took the opportunity at the beginning of this war to take over Western Tigray and you know and, and with an accompanying process of what's been described as ethnic cleansing. Um, by Amnesty and Human Rights Watch. So for the Tigrayans, this is a complete outrage. They consider it not just brutal, but also unconstitutional. Um, So they want Western Tigray returned to Tigray, whilst the Amhara are absolutely determined to hang on to it. But to get to your the point here, I think it is hard to imagine how Abiy and the TPLF reconcile. But even if Abiy sincerely wants to do that, he's constrained by his coalition, as, as you referred to. I think... You know, the, the bad blood between Amhara elites and the TPLF has been, been building for years. Um, there is the Walkite Western Tigray issue. And th- then there was the, the fact that w- when the Tigrayans broke out of, 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 of Tigray last July, um, again, to try and overcome this blockade, um, they obviously went through Amhara, caused devastation there. Um, and that led many in Amhara to think that the federal government and Abbey had left them exposed. Um, and then as the peace process, you know, as, as much as it was one, developed, many in Amhara thought that Abiy was going to sell them out on Western Tigray and Walakait and sort of hand that back to Tigray. I'm not sure whether that was ever realistic, but that was the perception. And then um, Abiy and the federal government, his regional allies in Amhara, they moved against a more sort of unruly, 
harder to control elements of the Amhara militia, known as, as Fano, and there were sort of thousands, said to be thousands of, of arrests. So all of this contributed to a great deal of concern and loss of faith um, that, that Abiy was really backing their, them and their cause in, in Amhara. Um, and and you know, created the question of, well, just how far can Abiy go with a peace process, even if he wants to, without facing a really problematic backlash in Amhara? And everything I just said can be applied to the situation with Eritrea and Isaias, because there is no part of Isaias or his government that wants to see anything but the complete destruction of the, the, the TPLF and the total pacification of, of Tigray, uh, both as, um, as, as revenge for what occurred in the past and to ensure that Tigray is no longer any sort of military threat to Eritrea in the, th- in the future. Yeah, and Isaias, who, you know, as you say, is the deep hostility to the TPLF stretching back to the 1980s and then the Ethiopia-Eritrea war. I mean, he's been sort of airily quiet over the past few months when the two sides agreed to the truce in, in March. Nothing from Asmara. Definitely. It's not like um, Eritrea's government is one that's predisposed to you know, regular press conferences and, and you know, useful press releases and this type of thing. But no, there was some sort of ominous silence from Asmara and a sense that they were brooding or, or perhaps biding their time. I think there was a genuine frostiness that developed between Isaias and Abbey. I think it's a complicated relationship there over who's, who's leading who and who's outsmarting who and, and all the rest of it. But I think we can, maybe it's reasonable to say now that uh, perhaps in Asmara, they never really thought that they were certainly never backing this peace process. But they also gave it essentially no chance. And so they were biding their time for it to break down and for war to resume because that did always look likely. So to what extent that was agreed with with Abbey and the federal leadership is is very hard to tell. You know, clearly we've seen some um, signs of military planning um, in terms of joint operations, Ethiopian troops going into Eritrea reportedly and then coming over the border, this type of thing. You mean since the, in this latest bout of fighting? In this, in this, sort of in this latest, latest range of fighting. But it, you know, the, obviously the extent of military planning between Asmara and Addis is hard to say, but some signs that there was some planning, maybe just contingency planning, I don't I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think we can we can see now that um, we, we knew that Isaias didn't support the peace process and, and perhaps he was always confident it would break down in this manner. So could we just talk a little bit then about the humanitarian situation in Tigray? As you say, suffered this blockade now, approaching now two years. I mean, just just this week, the human rights experts, a team appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, uh, published its report on Tigray. I mean, it was pretty unsparing in it's criticism of both sides, but 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 especially of, of Addis Ababa. I'm going to quote some of it. I mean, what reasonable grounds to believe that the federal government and allied regional state governments have committed, continue to commit crimes against humanity, of persecution on ethnic grounds, intentionally causing great suffering or serious injury to body, to mental, to physical health, based on their ongoing denial or obstruction of humanitarian assistance to Tigray. The uh, the commission chair. Uh, Kenyan lawyer uh, and human rights advocate Kari Betty Murungi uh, described the humanitarian crisis as shocking, uh, both in scale and duration, and, and said that the widespread denial and obstruction of access to basic services, food, healthcare, and humanitarian assistance is having a devastating impact on the civilian population. Now, the report also said, again, quoting, there were reasonable grounds to believe that Tigrayan forces had committed war crimes, including large-scale killings of Hamhara civilians. That's in the in the Amhara region when Tigran forces uh, captured parts of Amhara, and of rape and sexual violence. So it's, I mean, it's a pretty devastating uh, report. 
uh, won't come as a huge surprise to anyone who's been following the war. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that these are horrific but unsurprising conclusions. Um, we, we should note um, that because of the um, the denial of of access, essentially, um, by the federal government and the, all of the attendant you know, logistical and security problems, they haven't been able to do uh, any real research on 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 the ground. Um, but their initial findings confirm. Uh, some of the massacres. I think importantly, it's this assessment from you know some, some, some international human rights, United Nations appointed human rights experts that um, the government has essentially been using starvation as a weapon of of war. Um, so sort of confirming or corroborating the allegations of a siege strategy. I think that's important. Although I think that the experts acknowledge they need to do more work in all areas. Um, it's caused a furious reaction, unsurprisingly, from from Addis. That's just part of the usual you know, propaganda sort of rebuttal stuff. But also, of course, this is the potential beginnings of international accountability um, for these international crimes. So, yeah, certainly a useful contribution um, in terms of um, corroborating and sort of um, you know, authenticating some of the you know, very strong suspicions that we, we all have about what's been going on. And it's, I mean, it's worth saying that, that um, what the numbers of people killed as well is very unclear, uh, very hard to assess. But, you know, certainly tens of thousands killed in the fighting itself and then, you know, potentially many, many more killed. But as a result of the, the war and the, and the blockade. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's very difficult to tell. Researchers sort of said figures of up to half a million potentially um, as a result of all, all the things that you list, um, both sides have described each other as using human wave tactics, um, using newly recruited civilians essentially as cannon fodder. Um, I think we could tell from that that the recent confrontations and all these fronts has been absolutely brutal. You know, this is a very infantry heavy war um, because of the circumstances on all sides, uh, you know, conscripts in Eritrea. Tigray is just mobilized uh, to uh, to defend Tigray's interests at, 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 at all costs and, and the mass recruitment and mobilization on the, the federal and Amhara side, very raw recruits going into battle here. Um, and just in the last couple of weeks, we're hearing reports of thousands, multiple thousands are being ki- killed in some of these confrontations. So it's just sort of unbelievable carnage on the battlefield. And I think it's kind of really brings to home uh, the, the fact that, that this conflict just doesn't, for various reasons, get the amount of attention it, it deserves, considering the degree of, of human suffering here. And that human suffering is absolutely both in terms of the direct impact of people being killed on the battlefield and then everything that's come with the war and the brutal way that it's being conducted. I mean, Will, obviously the tenor of this conversation has been pretty bleak. And again, we'll talk in a moment about some of the options for diplomats trying to bring the parties back to the table. But your pessimism is rooted in what this escalation says about the apparent goals of the two sides. If you follow the logic of the escalation through, it sort of suggests that Addis seems set on destroying the TPLF. I mean, you talked about that being Eritrea's goal, but it's hard to see how that happens given the war's trajectory over the past year and a half. It would certainly involve... You know, enormous brutality, but even then, it's hard to see a military solution along those lines, right? subjugating uh, Tigray. And at the same time, it's also quite difficult to see how Tigray breaks through the siege. What are the options? I mean, it's south, maybe 
sort of aiming to destabilise Addis, but that failed last time. Or it's into Western Tigray, maybe to open up supply lines to Sudan, but the TPLF has chosen in the past not to try to take back that area, despite how strongly Tigrayans feel about it, presumably because it's militarily quite tricky to recapture. So it's also not clear that Tigrayans can break the siege by force. Both sides now going back to war, but pursuing goals that seem very difficult to achieve militarily. Yeah, it's certainly hard to see any of the sort of political objectives that the two sides have being met through military means in the short term. We should note this war has been volatile and and unpredictable um, with huge swings in it. So maybe we'll see something that we're not expecting. But, you know, whatever reasons there were for the outbreak of the war in the first place, the political dispute, the constitutional dispute. Now on the Tigrayan side, of course, they're sort of fighting to to overcome the blockade. They they consider themselves to be experiencing a a, a genocide at the hands of the Ethiopian, Eritrean, etc. forces. So that they, they they see themselves as fighting an anti-genocidal campaign. So whatever, you know, whatever caused the war in the first place, these are the sorts of calculations that are that are in place now. But the question becomes we could see why the Tigrayans got frustrated in, in early August after these federal promises on services. Um, and they got frustrated with the situation to the extent that they seized the 12 tankers of World Food Programme fuel, which they said that the WFP owed them you know, just before the conflict re- restarted. Understandably provoking this angry response from the WFP. Obviously, you know, the, the, it was a yeah some dispute between the Tigrayans and, and WFP, and, and the Tigrayans seized the fuel just before the fighting. But the point, you know, the point is that this is the sort of extent. This is how you know, desperate they were um, to to overcome, um, and this is how sort of um, the lack of faith they had in the international um, system or any external actor, or let alone their Ethiopian counterparts, to do anything to help them. So therefore, more than ever, they're fighting to overcome this blockade. But it, it isn't particularly clear to me how that occurs in the short term. I sort of get the impression that the Tigray leadership wanted to show that all of the threats that they've made this year, if they do not lift the siege, we will lift it ourselves. They wanted to show their military threats were not empty. But just by winning some battles, seizing some territory in Amhara region, maybe pushing towards the West, uh, dealing a blow to Eritrea's forces, even if they are successful, on the battlefield in those ways. I don't see how that does anything to change the mind um, of those in in Addis Ababa and Asmara, um, in Eritrea and in Amhara um, to to take measures um, to to alleviate Tigray's suffering and and to meet some of of the Tigrayan demands. So therefore, sort of logic would suggest that this looks like um, an all-out war at this point. And therefore, you know, are we looking at something very sustained where um, they managed to sort of not just take back Western Tigray, but you know, create a very sustainable and useful supply line that they can defend through to Sudan? Um, or are we looking at another push south? And then there's the sort of, I guess, the least likely option, but one which has been you know, talked about and the Eritreans say they fear which is that the, you know, the Tigray forces pushing north and and maybe eventually um, to Asmara or, or or to to the coast. Now may, maybe these are objectives, but again, it's very hard to see, um, or it, at least it doesn't look likely that they'll be achieved any anytime soon. Therefore, this makes us think that maybe we're in for 
uh, you know, an- another sustained period of, of, of conflict and perhaps an even longer one. When I spoke to General Tzadkan, uh, uh, you know, one of the Tigrayan military commanders, you know, someone who split from the TPLF decades ago, but is absolutely part of this um, you know, Tigray resistance now. I think three or four times in our conversation, he said, we will never surrender. And anyone who knows anything about the TPLF, anything, anyone who knows anything about how this your war is being fought and why it's being fought, we know that the Tigrayans and the leadership are not going to surrender. And, and there's not going to be any pressure for them to do so from the Tigrayan people either. So what are the people who are occupying Tigray and trying to pacify the region, what are they hoping to achieve and how do they plan to achieve it? Of course, you, you should never say never, but yes, it really is hard to, hard to see that even if the federal coalition, Eritrea, its, its allies, even if they have significant successes on the battlefield, where does that lead? Does that lead us any closer to, to peace and a reduction in suffering and violence and any form of sustainable political settlement? It's far from apparent you know, how, that can, um, how, how, how that could come about in those circumstances. So, well, let's turn then to um, peacemaking efforts. You sort of implied, I mean, after the truce back in March, that there was a sort of lull, certainly in Western, but more broadly, a sort of lull in international focus on the war, partly, of course, because of Russia's war in, in Ukraine. But the, the last few weeks, you've sort of seen diplomats step up their efforts again. You have the US envoy that you talked about, Mike Hammer, uh, the European Union's envoy, Annette Weber, uh, African Union envoy Oleshegun Obasanjo, the former Nigerian president, although what the Tigrayans sort of have concerns about the AU playing a lead role given that its headquarters are in Addis. Some talk of former Kenyan president Uhuru Kenyatta mediating as well, and I think William Ruto, the new Kenyan president, despite his troubled relationship with Kenya, has said quite sensibly that Kenyatta could play that role. So what do you make of sort of international efforts as, as they stand and whether they have much hope of getting the parties back to the table? Maybe we should note first that it's a mixed picture, essentially. I think, you know, for example, you know, the US envoy has, has successfully facilitated meetings between the representatives, as we discussed, in Djibouti. There's a much more recent meeting in Djibouti since the fighting resumed, um, but didn't, you know, hasn't, hasn't, hasn't come to much, but a meeting between Tigray and federal representatives. So there has been some effective diplomacy in that regard. I mentioned that visit of the envoys in early August. It didn't go well, didn't get a good outcome. Clearly, there has been these sorts of international efforts. I would also point out that after that sort of federal pledge to do something on services, maybe uh, there really should have been some more focused engagement there to ensure that that was um, incrementally built upon. Overall, you know, the war has has fluctuated. Obviously, we've had massively changing global events. Um, I think at, at times people assumed that that Abiy, his days as, as leader, were, were numbered. Um, despite the massive frailties the country has and his dwindling support all over the place, you know, Abiy is actually in a relatively strong position at, at the centre for now. And I think that's led to, to, to various international actors, including the US, sort of deciding that they have to accommodate themselves with, with Addis and, and shying away from any sort of tougher, more punitive stance, placing sanctions, economic sanctions, individual sanctions to try and get Addis to bend. So it's been a been a mixed picture, of, of course, because of the nature of, of the dispute. It's it's very, very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult to get President Isaias to change his mind. The guys, it seems, is absolutely fixated um, on the on the destruction of, of the TPLF. So it's, it's limited in terms of um, you know, what the international 
actors could do, especially when they're not willing to wield um, you know, their, their biggest sticks here. They're not willing to wield their biggest sticks, but is it clear that sanctions, for example, would really make much difference to Addis's calculations? I mean, they might signal international opprobrium, uh, Western upset with Addis, but I mean, would they really change Prime Minister Abe's calculations? The other option, of course, would be something like aid, but denying Ethiopia aid, again, tricky, given that it maybe isn't Addis that suffers because of that, it may be ordinary Ethiopians, it may sort of fuel discontent and destabilize other parts of the country. What are the sort of sticks we're talking about? That's right. And, and of course, the um, the threat of, of sanctions has, has been there, uh, particularly from the US, but that you know, hasn't had much success so far in you know, changing the behavior of, of, of Addis or any of the other actors. Um, and perhaps you know, the most fruitful area to focus on here is that um, Ethiopia's overall economic position, the government's a difficult fiscal position was one of the motivations um, for you know, for them to take a more sort of peaceful approach initially this year, with the hope of you know, restoring their international relations and getting funds flowing to, to Addis again. And that started to happen significantly. You know, the World Bank has been sort of leading the charge um, with a number of uh, big big programs being announced. Now, you know, clearly, there's a very big dilemma here. Um, for the international actors, there's something like 30 million Ethiopians in need of assistance at the moment. The country's in a desperate position. So a really big dilemma because you don't want to cut off that all that assistance given those conditions. But I think, you know, when we look at and talk about the peace process, we know these issues of the blockade and service restoration has been so critical. So when it comes to the big funding from the World Bank and there's a possibility of a new IMF program for Ethiopia, which would mean your direct budget support to the Treasury, you know, is the action that the US and the other major shareholders could think about in terms of trying to say to Addis, you know, we want to support you, we want to help Ethiopia economically recover, but we need a genuine peace process. Um, so, so perhaps that's you know, one of the sort of few areas of, of practical leverage um, that the US and, and, and other international actors hold here, which could be applied. You're linking this, the funding from the big international financial institutions um, to progress in the, in the peace process. And just, I mean, just to say, well, I mean, this is not, um, we're not talking about humanitarian aid here. You're talking about sort of direct budgetary support, sort of development aid to Addis. Yeah, I mean, there's no question of cuts to humanitarian aid. The humanitarian challenges are, are, are massive. Um, definitely not. But indeed, it's that direct budget support. Um, and um, yeah, and also, you know, these, these, these big World Bank programs, which are also channeled through the government. And so what's next then in terms of what foreign diplomats, what the various envoys can do? The problem that we're confronted with now is that you know, all of that sort of painstaking work to get the truce, get more food in, get, get a federal pledge on services and, and, and that, that type of thing, that's all been blown apart by the resumption of, of conflict. Um, and all of the arguments, as we've discussed, all of the arguments for you know, why fuel can't be delivered to Tigray, for example, uh, all, all of these you know, hardliner arguments, um, they will be just coming to the fore and, and are, are difficult to overcome given the resumption of war. But I think the you know, really the only viable option for, for the internationals is to make the sort of arguments that, that we and many others are making, which is how do you actually expect to achieve your political objectives through military means here? So even no matter how much you despise each other, and disagree with each other, you have to try and hammer this out. 
um, somehow. And it will be painstaking. It will take years and there will be ups and downs. But that is the only way forward. And then more practically and more in the more sort of short term, it seems to be a return to June, an attempt to use the issue of service restoration as a way to alleviate the suffering in Tigray, um, the federal government to be able to show in, in a tangible way that it's committed um, to, to changing its approach here. That would obviously improve the situation for Tigray and civilians. So I think it's going back to that issue of services restoration which by no means solves all the problems here. It doesn't even mean that the blockade is completely lifted, um, but it would be meaningful action. It would build um, some some confidence. Um, obviously, that would have to come um, after a recommitment to a truce, to a cessation of hostilities. And then you could build from there and begin, hopefully, the formal mediated international process. There seems to be some understanding. This can't just be an Obasanjo show now that he has to be accompanied by other African statesmen supported by the US and the EU and the UN envoys. So that sort of mediation, expanded mediation structure is beginning to take shape, but we have to get the parties to stop fighting. They have to commit to a truce. And if the Tigrayans are going to sign up to a formal truce, really the federal government has looks like it has to take some action on that um, service restoration issue, just as the initial stepping stone and is um, well, is is humanitarian aid getting through now? No, not 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 at the moment. Uh, all flights suspended, all uh, land deliveries um, suspended because of the the outbreak of war, because of the security situation. Nothing getting through it, you know, since um, the twenty fourth August. So we're, we're almost a month into um, this latest round of fighting now, of course. And so, as you say, it's about trying to forge some sort of humanitarian truce, like the one. In, in March, and then from there, trying to sort of get the parties back to the table. But there's a sequencing question as well, right? I mean, the Tigrans want the services, electricity, communications, banking, they want those restored before returning to talks. I mean, does it make sense for the Tigrans to sort of hold out for that? Maybe a sort of signal from the government would be enough, even though I guess the signal that Tigrans believe they got from the um, Seychelles and Djibouti talks didn't lead to much last time. Yeah, so I think what we'd be looking at is for the parties to stop fighting and to sort of formalise that as quickly as possible. And then, and then we'd be looking to sort of get back to where we were in terms of sort of medical supplies coming in on some UN flights and the increased food deliveries. Um, and, and so the humanitarian operations inside Tigray can, can restart. Um, you know, I think you know, ourselves and, and others have suggested that, you know, can the, can the Tigrayans at least uh, get this formal internationally mediated process started, um, even without some of their demands being met. Um, their position has has been against that so so far. But I think maybe realistically, um, you know, given given where we are, and of course this depends on the dynamics on the battlefield, people are going to be adopting more hardline, less compromising positions if they think they're in the ascendancy. Yeah, but but yeah, could we at least get um, you know, some sort of formal federal commitments um, on these services issue, perhaps you start to make clear its positions on some of the other Tigrayan demands, just to try and sort of grease the wheels um, to get the Tigrayans to the negotiating table. So that's the first demand, humanitarian access, the service restoration. But there's the other Tigrayan demands, right? I mean, related to the Eritreans, to Western Tigray, as we talked about. So presumably the sort of Eritreans out in principle shouldn't be so hard for the government to commit to in principle if the war were to end. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think if you're in a position where the federal government is 
committed sincerely to a peace process with Tigray's government, then it obviously makes sense to request um, for the Eritreans to to exit because the Eritreans are just an an ally in a war against Tigray. But if that phase is is, is over, then, um, then the circumstances change. I mean, whether Asmara would actually pull out, of course, is a different question, but federal assurances that that's the goal, I mean, presumably that in itself is feasible. There's a few, you know, thin silver linings, but yeah, the Sigrayans have made clear that they understand those sorts of realities. So what they're looking for is public federal commitments or formal federal commitments on these things. So to call for the Eritreans to leave, um, that's what they're looking for. Obviously on service restoration, they want to see more more action. That leaves the question of Western Tigray, right? I mean, arguably the, the most difficult Tigrayans uh, want it back. They want the displaced Tigrayans to return. They won't accept that the Amhara stay in control of the area. Um, but so far, they haven't been able to take it. They haven't really even tried to take it militarily. The Amhara feel just as so strongly that it's theirs. Whole bitter grievances over what they view as the forcible occupation of the land by the TPLF in the early 1990s, so some decades ago. Little sign that they're going to give it up and quite hard for Abbey to push them to do so, given sort of his relations with the Amhara. Plus, Abbey is probably not going to want Tigrayans to have access to the Sudanese border and those potential supply lines. So I have to admit, Will, I mean, prospects for resolving that seem pretty gloomy. I mean, it seems more likely that either things won't change or that the Tigrayans will make a push into that area, despite all the difficulties once or, or if they feel strong enough. But if you were to imagine a solution, some way of, of at least sort of parking the question so that talks aren't held hostage to it, I mean, that would maybe the federal government at least saying that it recognises the annexation wasn't constitutional, that Tigrayans can return, and then perhaps that federal forces would, um, would control the area, even potentially some form of uh, international monitoring for some time. I mean, it's still a very hard sell, but presumably that sort of compromise that sort of option is a potential way through. Yeah, that's that's right. Obviously, we, we, you know, we've, we've discussed and, and highlighted that this is just an incredibly thorny issue to, to resolve. Clearly, the Tigrayans, um, they, they want the federal government to come out with an unambiguous statement that this is um, the Amhara takeover was unconstitutional and essentially you know, sort of forced the Amhara um, to withdraw as, as well as getting the Eritreans to leave. Um, I think that's, very unlikely to happen. Um, of course, the Amhara are an important part of, of Abbey's, Abbey's coalition. Um, so that would cause a political backlash. Also not clear that the federal government you know, has the ability to get rid of the Eritreans and the Amhara forces. And then, you know, unless there was you know, a very changed circumstance and so you know, massively improved relationship between the Tigray and the uh, military leadership or the Tigray leadership and, and Addis, there would be concerns from Addis about the Tigrayans getting access to that international supply line. So to get to talks, we would probably need the federal government to make you know, some sort of declaration that they recognise this un- unconstitutionality um of of what occurred um but the chances of really getting that are quite slim um but the chances of getting anything further than that um just seem sort of approaching zero so that yeah, the tigrayans would have to perhaps settle for yeah, the return of, of displaced tigrayans um these sorts of pledges from, from Addis to that they recognize the unconstitutionality and that they're going to address 
and the issue of the future and not have the Tigrayans um, treat that as a reason not to you know, to begin talks. And then, and then I think that um, maybe realistically we could see a sort of a period of interim administrations and federal presence and international monitoring you know, pending um, a future political process, um, obviously primarily involving the, the Tigrayan and, um, and Amhara sides. But it's just an incredibly difficult issue to resolve, Richard. And in some ways, this is often the sort of um, the sort of tough issue that you might punt in peace talk, sort of agree to disagree for a bit while you discuss other issues. The question, I guess, is whether the Tigrayans are prepared to do that, right, given the depth of feeling about Western Tigray, the reluctance to leave it in Amhara hands. Yeah, and I think when we observers, when we look at it as a you know a difficult issue and and contested and and, and this type of thing, we talk about commissions to. That's just so different to how the Tigrayans um, generally perceive it, right? Um, they see the, no ambiguity whatsoever that the Amhara claim is on, on the territory is absolutely bogus. Convert, I mean, tell me if this is wrong, Will, but the Amhara uh, view things in pretty much the same terms, right? I think the Tigrayan claim that at the point of the creation of the federation, there was a, a Tigrinya-speaking majority in the area, um, that seems to have you know, some validity to it. And the Amhara claims are more historical, saying that that sort of Tigrinya-speaking majority in the area was a result of uh, previous displacement of Amhara and that type of thing. So it's like, it's it's part of the problem because they're, they're, they're just talking past each other, essentially. One's talking about historical ownership, the others talk about talking about the sort of ethno-linguistic um, demographics that occurred at the time when people were deciding which territories went into which regional state um, in the early 1990s when the federation was constructed. But I think from the Tigrayan uh, perspective, all they're really interested in is um, is seeing what they what, seeing this unconstitutional takeover reversed, uh, the return of people um, displaced. And then after that wrong has been corrected, um, then they would be willing to discuss um, the sort of political grievances that exist. And I think everyone else is looking at the problem as it exists now and saying, well, we can't see how we can resolve this in the short term other than through military force and therefore suggesting political processes now. But any political process now from the Tigrayan side is seen as legitimising an unconstitutional takeover of their territory, which involved ethnic cleansing and, and genocide. So you can understand, at least from their perspective, um, why they're, they're opposed to that sort of suggestion. Well, thanks uh, so much for all that. Not an uplifting conversation, but a really important one, uh, given the return to war, its terrible human cost. Plus, of course, the fact that Ethiopia itself is such a pivotal country in the, in the Horn, in, in the region. Really, thanks very much again for coming on, Will. Well, well, thanks again for having me on, Richard. And you know, obviously the situation is is is, is incredibly desperate. Um, and I think all of us could really do is just hope that the situation gets... Um, the sort of international attention um, it, it deserves, even if you know, we can't really foresee um, any solution um, in, in the short term to this crisis. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Ethiopia on everywhere else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producer, Kevin Murphy. Thanks to Alex Vigorsky, Heiko Schaub, who help out with production. And thanks again, of course, to all of you. Please do get in touch. Podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. 
you have any suggestions, please do give us a nice rating or review if you find the show useful. And I very much hope that you'll join us again next week.